The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Radio Reversal is broadcast live on Brisbane Community Radio Station 4ZZZ, located on unceded Jagara and Turrbal country. If this podcast jumps about a bit at times, that's because we have edited the broadcast to remove music, news, sponsorship notices, and other features of a live radio show. To hear the full version of the show, you can access on-demand and streaming at 4ZZZ.org.au. Radio Reversal is a show subjecting aspects of everyday life to political, theoretical, philosophical, irreverent and warm-hearted analysis, produced by a diverse and fluid collective of awesome folks. For more info, find us on Twitter at Radio Reversal or facebook.com slash Radio Reversal. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country, the Turrbal, Yagara, Jagara, Yugarapal and Kondamuka peoples, and their elders past, present and future. Sovereignty never ceded. Mutual, 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 this is the Mutual Broadcasting System. As radio gets called everything from gag to gadget, but fate is to make radio a power in a world of peace and war. And the show you are listening to today is Radio Reversal. Today on the show we are going to be talking a lot about political morality and social choice. Musing on the philosophical content of some kind of a broader political economic critique. This is very much in the spirit of Radio Reversal. I'm Nat. I'm in the studio with Joe and Anna. How are we doing this morning? Just great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, had to, I was going to ride here and then I had to get the bus because it's raining and yeah. uh, it cost me $4.60 because I didn't have a go-card. That is outrageous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Still kind of yeah, yeah. shaken from that experience. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we can talk all that through if, you know, you need to work out those feelings. <laughs> um, or perhaps we could talk about how maybe by paying with cash, you were subverting the thing Ooh. that you were preserving your privacy, which happens to be the topic of the show today. Oh, that is a 10 out of 10 segue. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I loved it. So, privacy. What are we talking about? Privacy, indeed. Yeah, so this is is a topic I've been thinking about a fair bit over the last couple of weeks. I think a lot of us have. Um, And I feel like it's it's one of those things, I was reflecting on this this morning, it's maybe one of those things where you, um, once you kind of start thinking about the thing, then you see it everywhere. (laughs) You see this conversation unfolding in all these spaces. Um, The thing I've been thinking a lot about is privacy and technology and the kind of interchange between them. But I think for for today's show, and I guess to contextualise that that conversation about technology and the digital revolution, and privacy and what that all means together. Um, we're going to have a bit of a, a dig back into what privacy itself might mean, what what the the kind of concept of privacy, where it might come from and how we might understand it. Um, so I think, yeah, and we're going to kick off um, maybe after a, after another track, we might kick off with some of this conversation about um, where privacy came from and how, mm-hmm. how we understand it. Yeah, I think because there's obviously... Uh, so I was doing some reading about privacy um, over the, well, I want to say over the, like the last week, but really yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that real. was also in the last week. So yeah, technically <laughs> true. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you get, can get bog- bogged down sort of in the legal definition of privacy. Uh, and if you look at the sort of history of privacy, a lot of it is pretty dry legal mm-hmm. history uh, with, you know, um, certain, uh, in- I guess, interests in privacy to make up the concept of privacy. And one of the things we'll discuss perhaps later on is how that assumes the kind of um, the liberal subject of mm. the bounded autonomous self. Uh, 
anyway, but we'll go through that. I guess our, our aim is to talk less about the legal definitions and more about the philosophical implications of this concept as it, get, as it gets used in various ways, which is also obviously a very political uh, discussion as well. I think, well, the definition that I got from the good old uh, Stanford Ugh. Encyclopedia of Philosophy, uh, which informed much of my reading this week and generally is there to <laughs> prop up a lot of this show, yeah. um, thanks to Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, anyway, the, the definition that they give is the privacy is the concept of control over information about oneself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. I guess it's mm-hmm. a very um, individualistic, self-bounded um, concept um and yeah it's i guess it's about the right to control that information uh not necessarily you know that every that you will never share it Mm. but that you choose to share it if if and when Mm. it gets shared yeah there's a there's a historical sense in which i think um some of the really early writing about privacy at least in legal spaces um refers to this idea of the the right to be left alone Mm -hmm. which i think is a really amusing (laughs) thing to reflect (laughs) on now as a kind of like how one would implement such a right is an interesting thing to think about but um but yeah i mean i guess that sense of control and autonomy is probably the way people think about it most now privacy Mm. being the right to kind of control or have some autonomy or self-determination over how you're represented or how people see you. Um, which in and of itself, like as soon as you say all these things together, you're like, whoa, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot going on there. Mm. Yeah, I was reading a piece this morning because um, I'm super prepared um, by Julie <laughs> Cohen, um, which was um, which I'll talk a little bit about, I think, throughout the show. Um, and yeah, in that she's, and she comes from sort of legal studies, critical legal studies, I think, and um, she was talking about how the way we think about privacy kind of assumes already this autonomous bounded self Mm. and then privacy is a boundary that you put around that self that is then kind of fixed um that there are these boundaries that yeah you can think can then be policed and then can be broken in certain Mm. ways um at certain times um perhaps by the state or if there's some other reason why that needs to be done um but then yeah i guess there's other ways to think about privacy that would make it more more about a relationship, right? Mm. Like um, a relationship between people and information or a relationship between different actors. Mm. Yeah, there's mm. like a heap of the the kind of visual metaphors that get used to like the lock on the door, you know, that you have yeah. this... And when people talk about, and we'll talk about this later in the show, but when people talk about um, the relationship between privacy and technology, like often the the framing is like, oh, you have this, this really powerful door, you know, really solid wood, really... And then you have this flimsy plastic lock and then anyone, you know, and this is the, the flimsy plastic lock is the password and we all have... <laughs> these like very easy to guess passwords mm. and we're all I terrible. read a piece last night about how there was like um, secure information like stolen from I can't remember which department but like some you know in, in Australia like a high up government department and it was stolen because the admin password to the admin account was admin yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the password to the guest account was guest yeah <laughs> that's yeah. a fun little anecdote oh. <laughs> it's just terrifying really yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is the context I was thinking. Um, so one of the we might we might come back to it a little bit later in the show. But one of the contexts in which this show is unfolding is so this morning I think the the media is abuzz with a story about the Defence Department mm. data breach. So um, a, a Defence Department subcontractor had a heap of so thirty gig of of information um, stolen from the. Um, Oh, it was stolen. Anyway, ha- they were hacked, um, which I think is really yeah. It's an it's an interesting context. Uh, one of the things I was reflecting on was how um, 
a lot of the response to it in the media, at mm. least, was um, would, would end with people being like, so, guys, you've, you've really got to do better with security. You know, you've really got to, like, improve your, your kind of, you know, your internal security. You've got to make sure that, like, you know, these, these passwords are better and really mm. make sure that this, this kind of privacy is, is protected. Um, you know, this, this shows it can happen to anyone, like small businesses, subcontract government departments. But also really interesting, the, the government very quickly trying to, like, distance themselves from the data breach like no no it was a subcontractor it's not our it's not like our stuff you know it's it's them it's just really we're not responsible for this um but yeah so this this kind of conversation about about privacy and about what kind of information is um is dangerous to be like stolen or what it means to be Mm -hmm. hacked what it means for information to be taken by people for whom it was not intended um is is a like a pretty is kind of omnipresent right Mm. to the context that we we're you know considering this in now yeah another um some other kind of relevant bits of news that have come up recently of course is um the uh plan to use facial recognition technology during the commonwealth games Mm. so um if you are on a train going to the gold coast during the commonwealth games you'll have your face scanned and matched to a database of known uh, criminals Mm. um and then there's also um the uh, state and federal leaders um, met at the Council of Australian Governments um, last Thursday uh, and they agreed to give federal and state police real-time access to passport, visa, citizenship and driver's licence images um, for a wide range of criminal investigations, not just identifying terrorism suspects. Mm. Uh, And the Victorian Premier was on Insiders on Sunday kind of defending that decision, saying that um, civil liberties were a luxury. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that, Mm. um, people in you know, people who weren't in power had the luxury to worry about civil liberties. Mm. And those of, those of us in power, he said, you know, we, we don't have that luxury. We've got to um, basically, you know, we, we have to, uh, you know, tr- tr- I'm paraphrasing, but I think this was the spirit of what he said. You've got to give the police whatever they ask mm. for wow. to yeah. be able to do their job because that's never worked out badly before. And <laughs> they are, you know, paragons of good judgment. And Naturally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, I wonder how much of that is enabled by this thinking of privacy as, as an attribute or yeah. as a condition, like a thing that can mm. then kind of be yeah. traded or negotiated mm. um, as opposed to something that's a little bit more dynamic. Mm. Um, yeah, and yeah, because I suppose the thing when I think about privacy is is maybe the end of that question is from whom or from what? Yeah. Like what are we seeking privacy from or is yeah. it just a thing that we want for its own sake? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I guess it's um, if, if you think about control and autonomy, like mm. if you return to the sense that privacy is control and autonomy, um, one of the things that we'll come back to a little bit later is that these kind of technologies of, um, of facial recognition in particular, they're embroiled in these much bigger conversations. So those technologies um, are pretty consistently revealed to have a bunch of un- unconscious biases. So they're, they're much worse at recognising women's faces than men's. Um, they do a consistently poor job of um, recognising faces of colour. Mm-hmm. They're generally a lot of the coding um, or the algorithms that on which they're based um, they statistically they're biased toward recognizing particular faces better than others but what's really I think what's really interesting though is that um, it's not even those things in and of themselves that are problematic it's that there's very little oversight on technologies like facial recognition so there's there's very little like the, Mostly they're adopted without people ever really doing long-form studies on mm. how they work or whether they work mm. or, like, yeah, what yeah. they're intended to do. Um, and and they, consist- they consistently fail. They're, they're 
not really that good yet. <laughs> like, they're really, and they're quite easy to um, to fool. But yeah, so there's a bunch of these, when we think about these kind of technologies of, um, of you know, security, quote unquote mm. security, and the fears that people have around privacy, like fears around privacy are never just fears around privacy, right? They're never mm. just a sense of like, no, no, no one has the right to see my face. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's well, what happens after that? You know, yeah. what is the impact of that relationship? Mm. Also, the the sense of someone seeing your face without you knowing yeah. is somehow more disturbing than if you knew about it. I yeah, think. yeah. And there's there's some really dystopian. Like I was reading an article about um, some of the particular that some of the new forms of facial recognition that are enabled by um, some of the social media sites that I don't think are yet available in Australia, but that it, that that basically mean you can take a photo of someone and then they can use Facebook's auto tagging software to find that person mm. on Facebook. Um, which, of course, is implicated then in a whole series of problematic um, social relationships. Mm. So I think a lot of a lot of women's groups have or have automatically responded to this by being like, oh, great. <laughs> well, that doesn't seem like it'll ever be abused. Yeah. Um, that seems <laughs> oh. awesome. Really glad. I don't know can... why you would do that, like, if for any other reason than if to abuse it. I mean, yeah, if you like, know someone well enough to want to add them on Facebook, you ought to probably know their would names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. It seems like there's no way to use that that's not creepy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm. it really, like, really unless you've, like, seen someone drop something and then you're like, oh, I should tell them. <laughs> I'll that just they... take a picture real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And add them on Facebook. I can't run after them. That's <laughs> foolish. <laughs> anyway. Mm. Well, I get, yeah, I mean, this is, it's making me think of, um, some shows we did uh, a couple of months ago, a series of shows around surveillance, which mm-hmm. is, which is, I guess, that thing that we're talking about when we're talking about privacy with respect to the state or privacy with respect to um, to businesses. It's always this this kind of sense of an unequal mm. relationship. Like, it's not mediating totally. privacy with your housemates over, like, whether or not it's okay to come into the bathroom when you're showering or something. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is about, um, uh, a th- like, privacy being transgressed in a way that has carries an implicit threat with it, right? Mm. Yeah, and it's a power relationship. And I think that, that maybe that point about um, rejecting a notion of privacy as a kind of stable condition is significant, if only because it speaks to the idea that a violation of privacy is almost always embroiled in a, in a power relationship, that the experience of, um, of having your privacy violated um, is, is probably... Yeah, like there's there's a there's a thing there about power that that maybe speaks to why it's particularly painful or difficult or why it hurts. I'm Nat. You're, I'm in the studio today with Joe and Anna, who are currently laughing at me, and we are talking about privacy. So, who wants to give us a bit of a recap of what we've covered in the first half hour of the show? Oh, yeah. I think I, well, we we sort of <laughs> roamed around the place. Um, yeah, I think we sort of came to the the legal um, definition of privacy as the control, the concept of control over information about oneself. Um, so, this um, maybe if we look a little further into like the history of this concept, I think there's some interesting stuff in there. So, um, the the concept of privacy is sort of said to have arisen in the in the kind of shall we say like legal or scholarly discourse by in an essay by Samuel Warren and, and Louis Brandis titled mm. The Right to Privacy in 1890. Mm. Um, interestingly, 
this this kind of anxiety about privacy was introduced or it was um, sort of facilitated by by the rise of um, newspapers and the printing mm. press at that time, and so they were they were concerned about these recent inventions, um, particularly photography mm. Uh, mm. and the ability to re- to reproduce the details of a person's life and disseminate it widely. Um, so yeah, concerns about privacy have always in this in this way been linked to technology. Mm. Um, and the ability to sort of reach across time and space and and take things out of the personal sphere and put put them in a very mm. like a widening public sphere. Mm. Um, so yeah, they they emphasise the invasion of privacy brought about by public dissemination of details relating to a person's private life. Um, and they um, so they said uh, they they said the right to privacy was based on a principle of inviolate personality, which was part of a general right of immunity to, of the person, the right to one's personality. Mm. So again, we have the the concept of selfhood coming up strongly here. Mm. And um, interestingly, so that they they sort of thought the privacy principle was already there in common law, mm. um, under the as part of the idea of private property, the protection mm. of one's home as one's castle. Um, but that yeah, new, new technology at the time made it important to explicitly um, separate, explicitly and separately recognise this protection under the name of of privacy. Mm. So yeah, yeah, mm. and this is it's a really interesting um, because I guess the the idea of property rights over um, over over the body over mm. the self has long been part of like the kind of legal approach to some extent. That's what rights look like. They look like a particular set of entitlements we have over our body that to some extent are modelled on private pri- sorry private. <laughs> Privacy, anyway, private <laughs> property rights. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's interesting to think about how something like photography does destabilise that because mm-hmm. it is this moment. And actually, this is maybe later in the show we'll talk a little bit about how this this still happens now. But this idea of um, of a right to one's image mm-hmm. is not really a thing that exists very much. Like mm-hmm. we don't really have a right. Um, we ha- we have a, a bunch of like particular kinds of rights about not necessarily being photographed without our consent, or but we don't really have much of a right about how our photos get used or what happens kind of once they leave our Mm. control like Mm -hmm. we don't really have a right to our image as Mm. such um yeah which i think speaks to exactly this dilemma of of privacy or of how to account for that then um and what that might mean for um one of the cases that i'm thinking of or one of the situations that i'm thinking of is um what is sometimes referred to i think probably pretty poorly as revenge porn Mm. or um, non-consensual pornography so where um, consensually produced um, explicit materials are then shared more broadly or are Mm. publicized as as like someone who's represented in those you don't really have any rights to Mm. like you can't you can't claim that someone's using your image without your um your consent or you can claim that but you don't really have any remedy for it Mm. um which is yeah it's an interesting i guess gap in between privacy and property and um that is is maybe at least partly produced by things like photo photography Mm. yeah and i mean i was i was thinking a bit when you were talking joe about how um the only way to kind of understand um, privacy as 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 it emerged in that particular moment in time is to think about it in this kind of dichotom- dichotomous relationship with with what's public mm-hmm. as well and th- the idea that um, newspapers were about taking something that you know had the potential and photographs and and you know the tragic example of of this kind of horrible revenge porn is about taking this thing that is a private interaction and making it public. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, which, which I suppose then becomes about, you know, what, what is the stability of the relationship between those two realms and, and is it always particularly easy to tell the difference between the two? Yeah, and who's private is private, you mm. know. And I, yeah. I mean, I think there's also, there's uh, later in the show we might talk about some of the feminist critiques of privacy, mm. and one of which has often been that what is designated as private becomes um, kind of undiscussable, you know. It becomes mm. this realm outside of public discourse and that can do really damaging work and it has historically done really damaging work, that kind of classic refrain of of feminist writing that is that the personal is political is often also framed as the private is political Mm. and the kind of designation of women as being as existing in the private sphere and men existing in the public sphere is is integral to like how we understand privacy and what we understand as being private um and lots of the early conversations about privacy were about um the kind of sanctity of the home and not not needing you know people Mm. not wanting to violate that um, I've been interested lately to see uh, had have some friends who were really involved in the homeless union organising in Melbourne. And there was a really interesting response where, like, when they were protesting in the in the public realm, the kind of designated public realm in on streets in the city, um, they were like, "Oh yeah, this is this is fine. Like, you know, you've you've you're doing the thing. You're protesting. This is how protesting works. Democracy. Blah blah blah." But when they found out where the Lord Mayor lives and then protested outside his house, there's absolute uproar you know people were were outraged by this and and the lord mayor's response was like this sense that he had been so deeply violated you know that this Mm. was you know and there's this kind of bringing up consistently like oh but my children were inside you know and my neighbors and like this is (laughs) yeah and i think it's really interesting because i think i can understand that that um, experience but i also think it's it's interesting that like the private sphere of people who sleep homeless for example or who sleep Mm. rough um, is is not a private sphere, really, you mm. know. So their whole private life is public. Yeah. Um, so there's always politics embroiled in like who's private is private. And yeah, which isn't. I, I think if we if we think about privacy um, through this notion of selfhood, then people mm. who are allowed to have a kind of selfhood, exactly, people who are allowed to have that kind of. Um, yeah, that autonomous, contained subjectivity. That has not been everyone no. or it's not been everyone to the same degree ever. Really. No, no, yeah. no. And I think, and that's that's absolutely part of the history of privacy, right, is that this is something that was, that kind of co-constituted with private property rights um, and that thus co-constituted as, as a kind of form of uh, protection that was available for a particular class of people. Mm. Um and yeah, I mean, it's a. I think it's it's still really interesting how um, how those things play out even now in privacy discussions. Well, I think the the question of you know he they came to my home and this is my mm. home is um, has been very effectively used um, in a number of you know examples to um, discredit protest movements yeah. or to say they've gone too far mm. as if as if making the making somebody uncomfortable is the sign of like a really over the top protest yeah, yeah. <laughs> as if that's not sort of the point yeah um, I mean I remember in the the ABC miniseries Bastard Boys um, which was, it's like quite old by now but I remember watching it um, a couple of years ago and the way, one of the ways in which um, you, you know there was a standoff between between the unions and, and the bosses and one of the ways in which the series kind of built and amb- constructed quote unquote ambiguity about whose side we were supposed to be on was when uh, one of the union bosses called up the the sorry the union one of the union leaders called up the boss's wife and you know said horrible things on the phone mm. to her and she was like really disgusted and upset and that was you know that that was a way of kind of positioning him as a bad guy yeah uh, as if you know i mean as if like weighing up the relative violence in that situation totally. that was you know equivalent somehow yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, and there's like, I mean, there's, I feel like you could do a pretty solid intersectional analysis of like everything that was going on in that particular, you know, yeah. her fragility and the, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. But um, but it is, it's a really interesting, I've been thinking a bit about the kind of power relationships of, of privacy conversations and, and I think one of the things that's often um, this sense of making public something which ought to be private, often the concern is that it will be taken out of context, you know, this kind of um, fear of what will happen once that information mm-hmm. exists in the public realm, what it means to... Um, yeah, like whether you have any whether you have any possibility of autonomy over that information once it exists out there. I'm thinking about it a little bit in the context of uh, you know the kind of uh, the way that we might read texts in line with a great kind of critical theorist and, and um, literary theorist Roland Barthes who writes about the idea of the death of the author. You know, once a text exists in the world, it exists in the world. You don't really have autonomy over it mm. anymore. Um, which is to some extent how photographs work. You know, when mm. there are photographs of ourselves out in the world, we don't really get to determine how they're read or what they're used for anymore. Um, but it, it also speaks to, like, you know, I think that that sense of that lack of autonomy makes a lot of us really uncomfortable, you know. Mm. Uh, I also think this is... I, I started thinking a little bit about how this crosses over with conversations we've had on the show before about cultural appropriation and particularly the use of um, of people's images as... Like kind of without their their control or mm. the use of particular kind of visual images or visual languages uh, in a way that people don't have any power over. And I think it, it is like when we think about how it feels affectively, you know, or emotionally, how it might feel to us to have um, have our images taken and used for something quite distinct. Maybe that is a kind of inroad into why cultural appropriation is so frustrating or why, you know, these, mm. these fears around images being used or misused does um, great people so so much yeah and I wonder I wonder to what extent this is about once those things are out in the world um, about us um, it kind of attaches us to a particular fixed notion of ourselves like that that it becomes quite hard to then change or deviate from Um, that yeah once once there's these these records of you out there that you can no longer retract or add to in any Mm. way that you can't put context around are you then wedded to this does Mm. that change the capacity of your private self to be different, to, mm. to emerge differently or to act differently because you're always going to be held to this, this particular set or this particular totally. image or this particular mm. text. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that um, technology and privacy, at least digital technology in particular, has the ability, even as it speeds up the rate of, at which we engage with the world, it also archives and freezes time mm. uh, in a very sort of disturbing way. And I'm sure, you know, for newspapers, when people first encountered newspapers, it felt like that as well. Mm. Of course, now we think of newspapers as pretty ephemeral. Like, okay. You know, <laughs> we, we burn them and or get rid of them and no one reads them. Um, and But, for instance, your really embarrassing teenage MySpace is kind of on the internet yeah. forever. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which is horrible. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was this, um, I guess, on this this notion of like temporality and privacy, or temporality mm. and digital spaces, and how it impacts our experiences of time. Um, there's this great quote from um, Kurt Vonnegut who says, "We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful what we pretend to be." Mm. Um, and I think there's a there's a really interesting crossover um, in the way that the in this kind of I guess role of digital technologies as an archive with uh, the experiences of forgetting. And uh, there's a there's a kind of much deeper conversation here about attention and what it means to pay attention to things and all of the like furor that exists around how internet technologies and digital technologies are making us, um, you know, distracted and silly and not able to focus and our IQs are dropping and it's all terrible. Um, 
But one of the things that I, I was struck by this week, there was a, an episode of RN's Future Tense that was um, that was also, I guess, a kind of dissection of um, the question of privacy. And it was an excellent episode. They interviewed a, a US-based academic, Victor Mayer-Schoenberger, who's the author of the book Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in a Digital Age. Um, so Schoenberger says that forgetting is a kind of is a pretty crucial social and political process. It mm. does really important work for us. And I think that that makes sense to most of us in our lives. Like it makes sense that that's that, that yeah, there's something useful going on there when we forget things. <laughs> um, what actually does it? I don't know. Maybe it makes sense to me because I've spent a long time politicising all my faults. Oh, yeah. Well, I think if you didn't forget anything, you'd, there would be no social Space relations. Left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I think for me, I'm just wishing I had the capacity to forget more. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Okay, yeah. Well, this is this kind of speaks to exactly what, um, what Maya Schoenberger's concern is, which is that there's like what kind of happens to social relations in a world mm. that can't forget. Mm. And I think the the part of the conversation that I was the most struck by was the kind of relationship between forgetting and forgiving, you know, in a very mm. like, you know, basic sense. Um, but he talks a little bit about this this question of like, what does it mean if there is an archive of every self we've ever been, you know, <laughs> that there's this kind of story out there, you know, the, yeah, yeah, the, the high school MySpace, like that exists in the world along with all of the kind of carefully cultivated narrative, you know, self-narrative mm. production that we, we use social media for now some of us do <laughs> that was a less good at that but um <laughs> but I think there's there is something really important about um what what it means for who we can become what it mm. means for how we think about ourselves and what it means for these notions of or the way people talk about things like authenticity or you know this sense of, of a kind of linear narrative of life mm. when there's this archive of just absolutely everything you've ever been um, and I, I was thinking about how, like, one of the things that struck me was that without the ability to forget, we're kind of stuck in these loops of, like, mm. self-doubt and these questions about whether or not we're being authentic. Because if you can't forget, we're always wedded to the past um, and stuck in this kind of, you know, constant relationship with all the selves we once were. Yeah, and then I think there becomes this... this pressure to put some kind of structure or narrative around that so it makes sense totally so that the person you were makes sense in context of the person you are now that you can draw some kind of traceable line between those two things and I really need to write on my hand that I need to delete my live journal (laughs) which exists somewhere if I can remember the password that's the thing passwords they always change (laughs) anyway um, but yeah no that's that's making me think a little bit again of this piece by Julie Cohen on on what what is privacy for which I might um, post a link to because I think it's open access and there's a lot in it that I won't do justice to um, but you know, and and she's really critiquing this idea of privacy as residing in this individual liberal subject, yeah. this autonomous self. Um, but she says that 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 doesn't make, and again, positions privacy as a relation rather than an attribute. But she says that that doesn't make privacy mm. any less important. What that does is make privacy more important. And instead, mm. she she argues. Um, that, and I'll quote here, privacy shelters dynamic emergent subjectivity from the efforts of commercial and government actors to render individuals and communities fixed, transparent and predictable. Mm. It protects the situated practices of boundary management through which the capacity for self-determination develops. Mm. And I, th- I mean, I guess she's saying it could, right? Like well, a really good version yeah, of privacy. This is, this is, this could is the that. aspirational <laughs> yeah. version of what, like if we're talking about what privacy regulation should be. Ought to be, yeah. Ought to be. Mm, sure. um, this, is, this should be what the goal is. Yeah, so it should be something that allows, that fosters this possibility for transformation, for movement, for growth, whatever. Yeah, it's breathing room. Yeah, you yeah. You know, breathing yeah. room for, for this messy self that, you know, is, is changeable and yeah. is not fixed. Um, yeah, and I guess I guess that, that also means space to forget. Yeah. But to I, be forgotten. Um, before we 
go into another track before deadlines. I wanted to come back to that idea that we can't, you know, forget mm. who we are in mm. ourselves. And to me, that's really writ large in our cultural um, thirst for nostalgia. Totally. <laughs> like we've, we've done a show on nostalgia before, but it bears repeating that, like, so many movies are getting remade. Uh, yeah. TV shows, you know, nostalgia is like the kind of product at the yeah, moment. Yeah. I mean, um, people literally almost rioted at McDonald's over the weekends because they wanted this oh. nostalgic <laughs> sauce <laughs> from 1997 that probably none of them had had to begin with, but it was like a nostalgia trip and that's what they were after. <laughs> that's Yeah, and it, it does like... I mean, I think it speaks to we've yeah we've talked about this lots on the show, but um, there are two things that I want to at least point to, and one is this idea of uh, maybe this Co- Cohen's idea here around privacy as like fostering space for mm. for movement, and growth, fluidity, whatever, um, as being kind of something about also being illegible. Um, mm. And I think that this is something that I've I've thought about a lot this week in the context of um, of like data and privacy and digital privacy, where there's this kind of the phenomenal depth of information about us, a, a huge amount of which is designed to make it seem as though we are predictable, stable, transparent, mm. that we can be wholly understood and then marketed to very effectively. And to some extent, that's that's probably true. I don't really know whether or not I buy into the idea of human, you know, free will or not. That's probably a bigger conversation than now. <laughs> I haven't had a coffee yet, so <laughs> not going to tackle that one. But I, I do think it, it speaks to this, the kind of radical potential of being unable to be read in those spaces. You know, the, the kind of like slightly joyous moment you have when Facebook gets you really wrong, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. when just like really markets something like just really wildly inaccurate <laughs> to yeah. you. Um, that there is, a, there is a kind of joyous experience then of not quite fitting, of, of being illegible to that, to that structure. The other thing I think is is on this nostalgia thing, and it's something we've talked about a lot when we've talked about um, UK-based, well, previously UK-based theorist Mark Fisher, who unfortunately died at the beginning of the year, but around this notion of one of the things that the internet also does, and I think the kind of wealth of data, one of the things it does, is flatten everything out, you know? Mm. So, so things are kind of, everything is abstracted. It's all, like, readable in these kind mm. of spaces, which is kind of what nostalgia does to memory, you know? It, it kind of flattens it all mm. out into this sort of aesthetic experience that's, that's sepia-toned. not... Sepia-toned. That's sepia-toned, yeah. We've, well, we've talked about kind of what the concept of privacy how it's usually understood and what maybe the, the assumptions and concepts that are kind of bound up in that understanding um, about yeah, the, the liberal individual self, the, the bounded self, the idea that, you know, you can put some things in, in public and some things in private and there are, there are clear boundaries between the two. Um, and, yeah, we've talked a bit about the relationship between privacy and technology, so how technology interacts with ourselves um, through space and time. Uh, can can stretch out our selfhood perhaps maybe more than than we'd like to mm. and allow greater inspection um, th- yeah through space as well as well as time um, I did want to read a quote that I came across this week um, from a novel by Milan Kundera uh, which kind of um, makes clear the way that that privacy is used as a stand-in concept for the notion of the intimate private self um, so it's quite a long one. I'll, I'll try to go through it um, slowly on my, in my radio quoting voice. <laughs> uh, okay, so it says, But one day in 1970 or 1971, with the intent to discredit Prochotchka, the police began to broadcast these conversations with Professor Vaclav Cerny, with whom he liked to drink and talk, as a radio serial. For the police, it was an audacious, unprecedented act. And surprisingly, it nearly succeeded. 
Instantly, Prochachka was discredited, because in private, a person says all sorts of things, slurs friends, uses coarse language, acts silly, tells dirty jokes, repeats himself, makes a companion laugh by shocking him with outrageous talk, flirts heretical ideas he'd never admit in public, and so forth. Of course, we all act like Prochachka. In private, we badmouth our friends and use coarse language. That we act different in private than in public is everyone's most conspicuous experience. It is the very ground of the life of the individual. Curiously, this obvious fact remains unconscious and acknowledged, forever obscured by lyrical dreams of the transparent glass house. It is rarely understood to be the value one must defend beyond all others. Thus, only gradually did people realise, though their rage was all the greater, that the real scandal was not Prochachka's daring talk but the rape of his life. They realised, as if by electric shock, that private and public are two essentially different worlds, and that respect for that difference is the indispensable condition, the sine qua non, for a man to live free, that the curtain separating these two worlds is not to be tampered with, and that curtain rippers are criminals. And because the curtain rippers were serving a hated regime, they were unanimously held to be particularly contemptible criminals. Mm. So, I mean, that's an interesting idea, right, that perhaps privacy isn't about, you know... I don't know, it's, that there's some kind of essential selfhood that we inhabit in, in, the, in the private realm or in the most intimate relationship with ourselves. And it's really, it's the right to, to, to have that mm. and to be not judged by it, really. Mm. Uh, that's, that's at the heart of, of personal privacy. And it, it crosses over quite neatly with, with one of the points that uh, in that book that I was talking about a little bit earlier by um, Maya Schoenberger, where, um, where he writes about this idea of segmentation and one of the things that, that humans have for a long time done. And so I haven't read the book and I've just heard him interviewed about it. Sounds like some of it might tend a little bit closer than I would like to some sort of evolutionary biology <laughs> stuff that I think is mostly wow. nonsense. Um, but anyway, he makes his claim that that um, people have for a long time sort of segmented their lives. So references an early sociological work that looked at, um, this seems very basic to me, but looked at how um, the, you know, waiters... Uh, responded differently to the people that they were wait, who, whose tables they were waiting on than to the staff in the kitchen. So people people perform different kinds of personas, mm. different forms of their personality in different spaces. Most people who have had a job will, will acknowledge that this is this is some part of their experience at least. Um, but what he says is that it, the the kind of omnipresence of particularly digital technology is eroding our ability to do that. It's eroding the the kind of distinction between the work the work self and mm. the private self. Um, so you have these technologies like Facebook that do all of those things. They're networking sites, they're sites of, of, of real work, of, of knowledge sharing, but they're also sites of um, of play or leisure. Or He, re- he refers in, in the interview that uh, that um, that's part of the Future Tense episode, he refers to this um, thing that he encountered with his students where he realised that most of his students, so who were probably in their early 20s, um, they, they use Snapchat for their kind of like immediate, like responsive stuff, like, oh, we're going out tonight, going to have a big night, whatever. They use Facebook as an archive. So mm. they use Facebook as the site that kind of constructs the the identity, the self that might be like sellable, that might be a kind <laughs> of, you know, uh, this this sort of product um, mm. that, that can then be, you know, so they'll, they would maybe willingly share their Facebook with future employers. Um, it's the more ephemeral um, forms of technology or, more, you know, of connection like Snapchat that are used for, um, yeah, these kind of more intimate engagements. Mm. But it does, it makes me think a little bit about how, like, I think I use Facebook very freely now um, in a way that I think a lot of what this reading has made me think about is how um, how insecure my, <laughs> my internet is, um, my engagement with the internet is. But, um, 
But I think about how when I, you know, every now and then Facebook will prompt me to remember a post from, Mm. I've probably had Facebook for almost 10 years now, uh, and it'll prompt me to remember a post from when I was 18 and I was first posting on Facebook. Um, (laughs) I went through and deleted all of those early posts. That seems like a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah, um, I didn't know whether you can do that, but but I guess you can. Yeah, I guess you can. Uh, Maybe maybe it's harder now. At the time, I was like, because it it, it became a thing on Facebook a few years ago for like some, um, you know, diabolical troll friend of yours to go back to like 2010, Aww. find a really embarrassing post and then comment on it so that it would pop to the top of everybody's news okay, feeds. That person is <laughs> not a friend. <laughs> yeah. But no, like it's making me think, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the role of, of digital technologies in mediating this, this, these kinds of changing boundaries is like, can't be overstated, but I, but I also think that, you know, it's, it's also about it's also a, the way that we are constructed now as workers under capitalism. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I've, like something I've, you know, when you're reading that quote, Joe, I just think about how, like I feel like in my job and I feel like for a lot of people's jobs, there is this push to to find a way to almost um, commodify or translate for your employer almost every part of your life can mm-hmm. get like subsumed into what your employer is interested in about you as a person. Yeah, what, what is it that you're doing right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, moving right along. Um <laughs> Hashtag impact. No. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, basically, like, I th- and I think this is increasingly the case when we're, you know, the horrible language around, like, the gig economy, which is just precarity and <laughs> casualization. But the idea that the thing that you are marketing is not your capacity to do a job, but it is you. Mm. Um, which means then it becomes, yeah, really hard to be, well, what, what are the parts of my life that are just 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 for me and I'm not instrumentalizable you know like I I mean I think this is this is one of the conversations that I think is interesting in in a conversation about privacy we've talked about it we did a show at the end of last year I think on soma technics this notion of destabilizing the idea that there has ever been a body that sits outside of technology and similarly like I'm not I don't know whether there Mm. is there whether there has ever been an authentic an authentic self you know somewhere buried deep beneath yeah what the the utility of human life you know yeah I mean you know even you know people's names came from professions, you know, once upon mm. a time in certain places. Like, that that seems like a really, really strong link. And I think people have always, to some extent, derived some sense of identity or selfhood from from the labour that they perform. Mm. Um, however, that labour is, is, you know, whatever the, the relationship of that labour to capital. Um, I, yeah. yeah. I think that the, one of the things I, I thought about a bit with, um, like, so online privacy, there's this really interesting set of labour relationships invested in it. So I was thinking about how, like, the thing, the reason that we're concerned about privacy in online spaces in a lot of cases is because data is gathered on us constantly mm. so it's we're always there's an enormous amount of data gathered about um about people in particularly if they're using social media sites or online shopping sites or whatever um so that data is is stored it's managed it kind of takes a bunch of forms but I think the thing that, that maybe feels like it brings questions about privacy to the fore is when you start realising that it's then being used for very specific reasons. So that data is being gathered, but then it's also being gathered in order to market back to you mm. or, like, it, you know, prompt you to remember that thing that you put in a, a shopping basket, like, six months ago or, you know, whatever the thing the thing is that the, the internet has never forgotten. It's um, an interesting paradox as well that 
we are concerned at one level about uh, privacy exposing our, our deepest self, like this kind of idea mm. of who we are and that, that being not guarded from outside forces. But at the same time, gathering data doesn't get anywhere near that. All it does is, is get to the surface level of who mm. we are. Mm. Uh, and then, But that in itself is also disturbing. Totally, <laughs> So yeah. much of it is being gathered all the time without our knowledge usually. Yeah, mm. and, and also because you're then reproduced in the data's image, right? Yeah. Like the, 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 there's this kind of replacement of you as a person with this set of data or with this, yeah, anyway, robots. <laughs> um, but the, the with the labour thing, one of the things that I thought about is that there's a huge amount of the labour of producing, you know, the, the individual, the kind of precarious em, employed um, gig economy, the, the individual as the product. There's a huge amount of the labour that goes into producing that that's never going to be remunerated, right? So mm-hmm. there's like, so there's this skewed labour relationship then when the data is is actively making money for a lot of people. So mm-hmm. every choice that we make on the internet, every, every kind of way that we self describe every social media site we use um, is money it's value that data is value um, but we as the kind of data laborers who produce that value don't get paid for that mm. you know so yeah and I think I mean there's that there's that quote that floats around I think um, if not you don't gonna, pay for it you're the product yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> like you know it's not our labor that you know really we, we are the thing being sold yeah, absolutely. But then, but then it is our labour. Like it mm. is. It's hard to in in that world that you're describing this kind of neoliberal work environment. Mm. It's hard to deny that the work that we do on Facebook is work. Mm. Like it is labour that is now increasingly important for how how if we get jobs, you know, for all of our, mm. our kind of possible spaces of employability. So. So it is a kind of work that's mm. happening there. But we're also the ones, and we're the ones producing the value. Exactly. That makes data. Useful. valuable yeah, yeah. For any reason yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> mm. and so it, it like i mean i think it destabilizes a classic labor relationship but it also destabilizes a classic privacy relationship and mm. like property relationships you know because we're we're like all of the things at once mm. anyway the internet fragments things guys what Pro tip. <laughs> <laughs> hang on i'm gonna need you to go back to the beginning and explain this again <laughs> You are listening to Radio Reversal here on 4ZZZ and um, I'm in, Nat, I'm in the studio with Joe and Anna. We've been talking about privacy um, and, yeah, the ways in which it is it intersects with the state, with capitalism and with digital technologies. So mm. it's pretty standard Radio <laughs> Reversal fair, right? Yeah. 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 So what's next? Well, I wondered if we should dig back into this. We talked a little bit at the beginning of the show about um, technology and um, and privacy and, and some of the ways that it might intersect with existing forms of oppression. And I was thinking mm. about, and we talked a little bit about this particular example, so the proposal. For those of you who weren't listening at the beginning of the show, there's a, um, a proposal to start introducing a particular kind of facial recognition software to um, the Gold Coast CCTV network and public transport spaces so that um and that actually the gold coast cctv is a very comprehensive network so they have cctv almost everywhere um in in the in the lead up to the commonwealth games next year so the hope is to have this kind of very um very robust network of um of oversight on mm. the city uh, and this is connected to so this this would then connect to a an existing database of of images. The idea would be to cross check um, people on public transport to images of people on a particular kind of banned list or a mm. um, a to watch list, and um, th- yeah, and then 
the, the more like distressing part is that it does speak to a kind of preventative approach to mm. policing. So the idea for the, at least for the Commonwealth Games, is that then um, if people who like, you know, trigger a red flag in a particular set of ways um, are seen on public transport, that they'll be removed and in many cases arrested prior to anything else happening. Yes. Arrest first, ask questions later. Yeah, naturally. <laughs> so yeah. where presence is criminalised. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So one of the things that, that this um, made me think about was, I guess, the kind of history of, of you know, what people whose presence has been has been historically um, policed or, um, or treated as criminalised. And so the crossover then between technology and different forms of particularly racial oppression. And I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that facial recognition software is generally pretty bad. It's not very good mm. at, like, seeing people. Um, and it's particularly bad at seeing um, seeing you know non-normative types where the norm is very discreet so I was thinking a little bit about um, facial recognition software and the histories the kind of racist histories of photographic technologies in mm. general so lots of folks will be aware that um, that early photography it was almost impossible to discern black faces in early photographs they were all photographic technologies were almost all optimized to view whiteness through the frame. So there's a bunch of really interesting work. Um, one of the academics who I draw on a lot and I'm really impressed by is an academic called Simone Brown, and we've talked about her heaps on the show. But she um, she talks about the there are these like interesting examples where you see what happens when someone's like blackness enters the frame. So there were a bunch of things um, released a while ago, different forms of like facial um, or like different cameras in computers and whatnot. Uh, and people were uh, w- different people were using them and um, uploading um, YouTube videos of what happened when they did. And there's a, a chapter of one of Simone Brown's books or a section of one of her books is called um, "What Happens When Blackness Enters the Frame." And it's like in a lot of cases it becomes undiscernible. So you see um, you see a face enter the frame, but you can't really make out details. It's clearly not optimized to view mm. that particular face. So you have these kind of forms of technology that are embroiled in these histories of being able to see and discern particular kinds of faces and not see and discern others, and then you're using them to uh, to kind of do this, like, quite serious work around, around justice and policing. And I, I read there was an article... Um, published in The Atlantic a couple of months ago that's called The Underlying Bias of Facial Recognition Systems. And I'll I'll, um, just read a couple of short quotes from it. So they write, In 16 undisclosed locations across northern Los Angeles, digital eyes watch the public. These aren't ordinary police surveillance cameras. These cameras are looking at your face. Using facial recognition software, the cameras can recognise individuals from up to 600 feet away. The faces they collect are then compared, in real time, against hot lists of people suspected of gang activity or having an open arrest warrant. Considering arrest and incarceration rates across LA, chances are high that these hot lists disproportionately implicate African Americans. And recent research suggests that algorithms behind facial recognition technology perform worse on precisely this demographic. Facial facial recognition systems are more likely either to misidentify or fail to identify African Americans than other races, areas that could result in innocent citizens being marked as suspects in crimes. And though this technology is being rolled out by law enforcement across the country, there's little being done to explore or correct for this bias. As with any emerging technology, facial recognition is far from perfect. Companies market facial recognition technology as highly efficient and accurate tool with an identification rate of 95%. Mm. 
In reality, though, these claims are almost impossible to verify. The facial recognition algorithms used by police are not required to undergo public or independent testing to determine accuracy or check for bias before being deployed on everyday citizens. More worrying still, the limited testing that has been done on these systems uncovered a pattern of racial bias. Um, so I think this this kind of speaks to exactly, well, at, at least a set of the concerns that people have. There's kind of an initial concern that's like, well, who gets marked as mm. suspicious in the first place? And then the second step is like, and can we even use this software effectively? <laughs> like, what does it even do, you know, mm. in practice? Um I think as a as a um, side note, the other thing that this does, that facial recognition software consistently does, is it supports a continued vilification of folks who cover their faces. So yep. for a variety of reasons, it means um, that, you know, this this kind of, if you've got nothing to um, hide, no, if you've got nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, mm. gets implicated again and again then in, well, why why are you covering? Why are you, you know, like if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing, yeah. Mm. I, got nothing, yeah. I was re- ill-advisedly reading the comments on the Korea oh, Mail article about um, the, the facial recognition software in the Commonwealth Games. Uh, <laughs> shout out to the commenter who said that, uh, you know, it's a waste of money. What we should do is have every single citizen's DNA in a database. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> therefore, if you, you know, you commit a crime, you leave your DNA, bam, caught. It's oh. easy, easy. Um, if nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do, like, kind of envy how yeah. benign the state must be in that person's <laughs> world. You know, the idea that, yeah, yeah, we could just totally trust them with, with all that information, mm. what could possibly go wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that must be that must be cosy, right? Totally. That, that sounds comfy. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, like, to dig into it, like, what are the things that concern you both about the, that kind of proposal? Like, what feels scary about the idea of the state having access to all of our DNA? Well, I guess because, well... A couple of things. Um, firstly, like circumstantial evidence can be could be extremely exploited. So, yeah. you know, the, and I will again give real real this time real props to the guy who responded to that commenter and said, "Well, what if you you know your DNA was fa- found near a crime scene and and you said, oh, but I was just walking my dog. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> too bad. Yeah. Especially if you're somebody the police might want to vilify exactly. for whatever reason. Yeah. That's made, made a whole lot easier. Um, and secondly, I think you know this is. I I want to say that this is like an outside possibility, but mm. also I think we've seen recently that it actually happens a lot more commonly than we think. Cases like Making a Murderer, like if anyone's watched the documentary Making a Murderer, like, the you know, evidence can be planted, evidence can be distorted, mm-hmm. evidence can be ignored or buried. Mm. Uh, it's extreme, like DNA, evidence, a direct link between DNA and, and innocence and guilt is just like it doesn't yeah, exist yeah. in practice. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel. I, oh, yeah. sorry. Go on. Oh, I was just going to say, and to add to that, it's. Um, I am uncomfortable with the, the idea that they would have health data and potentially, yeah. like as, as the genome is, in, you know, mapped, um, and as that project progresses, I'd be really concerned about how, um, this could be used against people with, um, yeah, with disabilities or disorders that show up in genes. I'd be mm. really concerned about how how that data could be used against people. Yeah, and and that actually, interestingly, we had a we had a subscriber call just a couple of minutes before um, or during the, the last track we were playing, and one of the things that they were talking about was was exactly this that actually there's there's already enormous health data kept mm. on people, and it does have very 
very real effects on your ability to access things like insurance. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that you see when you think about then, you know, the government keeping this this kind of like massive amount of data, so, a, you know, a DNA map of everyone in the country or whatever. Um, then you're, yeah, then suddenly you are talking about, well, like, what is the data security like? Like, who do they, you know, and do we give informed consent? Do we get mm-hmm. to know everything that they use that data for? Do they only use it for the police? Do they share it with the police for a different reasons? Do they share it with the military? Mm-hmm. Do they share, you know, do they share it with mm-hmm. docs? Um, and is it going to, like, lead into these other kinds of, like, welfare, um, mm-hmm. you know, contexts where we have uh, these these threats that, you know, people with, with different... Um, uh, you know, with different, like, uh, yeah, that, that 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 will then impact on people's ability to access welfare, or whether mm. or not they're uh, they can they can keep their kids. You know, there's these these kind of like all of these flow-on effects that that are at least in part relevant to well, who's how does that data get used, mm. and do we have control over it? Do we retain autonomy over our DNA once we've given it to the government? And I feel like that again, that's that question of privacy, right? Where you're like, well, maybe it's not necessarily an issue in and of itself if they have this data but it's like do I get to say yeah yeah you can share it with these people but no I don't want you to share it Mm. with those people you know or do they yeah and like is there is there any oversight to that yeah and I've been thinking I've been thinking a little bit as well this week about um about big data and the relationship to big data and privacy and I think when we think about um the idea that there's just this massive pool of of perhaps you know, um, biological data sitting in a government database as well as all the other kinds of data they might have about us. Um, It's not like that just sits there in a neutral fashion that is then Mm. drawn upon in a neutral way. Like that data can only be accessed by asking particular kinds of questions and it can only be organised by structuring it in particular kinds of ways, which means that there's always already all of these things that are happening that are going to be social and political and economically determined. Mm. you know, so we're not we're not neutral beings of data in this database. Where we've already been made and we've already been constructed in particular ways. That's always going to make some of us more vulnerable to to intrusiveness, mm. um, and have have less of a capacity to exert any kind of agency over what happens with that information. I think. Well, I think we've kind of touched on at least the core concepts of like a lot of feminist or intersectional critiques of privacy. Like a lot of a lot of that critique is centered around the idea that particular people get given subjectivity that is important to be protected mm-hmm. and other people don't. Mm-hmm. So if you sit anywhere outside the the form of subjectivity that is protected by a privacy regime, then privacy mostly just means that it's another like form of your subjugation, right? Mm. I feel like that's like the basis. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So don't know why people no, write books. About decades this. of writing summed up in twenty seven. <laughs> well done. Yeah. yeah amazing. I mean, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I, I guess yeah. It's that. Um, it, it's it's that concept that what happens in private is, or what happens in the home is pri- a private matter that's been used to excuse it and gloss over mm. domestic abuse in particular um, for many, many, many mm. centuries, and continues to be. I mean. It, yeah, if there's you know a high-profile case of domestic abuse, chances are some commentator somewhere will yeah. say that um, what happens in a relationship, no one else can fully understand mm. it, so on. Totally, and but I mean, even more tellingly, and particularly in a conversation about technologies, it's just harder to see, you mm-hmm. know. And that's that's like one of those other things that privacy does, or that sometimes privacy can do, is to produce spaces that are free from oversight. I oh, know that's private, that's personal, so you can't you can't look at that. 
and that's like I think that that does really important work, but it's it's easy to see the ways that it might fall down, or it's easy to see mm. the ways that it might be mis misapplied or used in um, problematic ways. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think a big part of that feminist critique of of privacy is just um, you know just just asserting that um, that privacy is never not. Um, Never not a claim attached to political and social relationships. Like yeah. it's 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 not that kind of idea of a neutral attribute that we have or don't have. It's always going to be mediated by by these power relationships and by context. And so, mm. um, the claims we're making about privacy and a right to privacy, um, or the idea that it shouldn't exist in a particular scenario, is always going to have those claims wrapped up mm. in it. Mm. I guess because you're yeah when you're particularly in the case of a relationship with somebody else, you know. You, you don't have a private your right to privacy doesn't extend over yeah. over them as well mm, yeah uh, you know you totally. may you may have a right to be private about your most intimate self but that you know that's some, something categorically different to uh, the dynamic between yourself and someone else and the way mm. your actions um, take part in their world as well totally mm. it's always yeah there's a really interesting I feel like I, I'm often thinking about the like when if if in a relationship with somebody else they ask you not to tell other people about something that is relevant to you or like mm. an experience that you've also had like whether or not like how you deal with that I guess or like what how you would understand that through a lens of privacy mm. um, but maybe because we've only got 15 minutes or so left maybe we should talk a little bit about I've, I started thinking a bit this week about um, about privacy and in the context of the private and the public realm and about the what's sometimes called the internet of things mm-hmm. which is I think a funny phrase anyway I like it it sounds like an art installation I would have gone to 10 years ago <laughs> I really <laughs> like that about it <laughs> um, yeah but it's evil yeah, yeah, yeah sure <laughs> anyway um, <laughs> an evil art installation you would have gone to 10 years ago yeah yeah, yeah. well the, I mean the art installation probably wouldn't have been evil I'm going on a tangent. That's how they get you. That is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's this, there's this really, uh, I think there's this really interesting thing that's happening now. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the concept of the Internet of Things, it basically describes the kind of increasing digitization of more and more elements of life. So we have like smart bins that have sensors in them that know what's being put into them, and we have uh, you know sidewalks that have have um, or yeah footpaths that have cameras in them or sensors in different if places. Looking, if you're wondering where this phenomenon is happening, if you want to look out for it, just look for the word "smart" as applied to yeah. like any object or like a weird exactly. thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've got like smart fridges or smart, I mean, the, the fridges. Brushes. Sorry, yeah. that's an ongoing bugbear of mine. But yes, anyway. Totally, yeah, yep, smart fridges. toothbrushes, all of these other things. Yeah. yeah, and there was just, there was a new story story recently that, um, yeah, the police have, have won the right. Smart to, police? Do we yeah. have those? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're a long way off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're still waiting on the technology. No, um, to basically to access your smart fridge if you have a smart fridge um, for the purposes of surveilling you if you're suspected of a crime. Wow. So your your fridge is not your friend, people. If it is connected to the internet, um, it's spying on you yeah. and, and probably judging what you put in it, I'm assuming. It's so, yeah. yeah. So, like, one of the things that it made me think a bit about was this idea of, like, how we've often... I mean, it's been eroded consistently and it is not the same for everybody. But historically, there's been a sense of the kind of inalienability of the private realm and Mm. that's like where a lot of privacy discussion comes from so Mm. your home is your home if someone wants to come into it they need a warrant uh you know there are all of these kind of um processes that you can you know you have some control over who can 
and data challenges all of that. And mm. the, the kind of, uh, and I think the phenomenon that we're seeing now when people talk about the Internet of Things is intimately connected to big data in the sense that it, we're just talking about like an amount of data that is incomprehensible to, to the human mind. Like we could not possibly sort through the amount of data that is produced mm. every second, you know, through through the internet. Um, so when, you, when you're thinking about, you know, having these, these kind of smart devices, this, you know, over this abundance of smart devices in your life, they're all producing a particular catalogue of information. And that information is super interesting largely to people who want to sell you things but also to people who maybe don't want to sell you things or people mm. who want to restrict your access to particular things and mm. I this is a tangent but I think it's a useful one so Facebook were got into some hot water a couple of years ago uh, when it was revealed that they um, they have an ethnic affinity um, classification that they use uh, and that they provide to uh, an ethnic affinity marker that they provide to people who want to market through Facebook so people who are marketing through Facebook can choose ethnic affinities mm. that they want to market to and those that they don't this might seem innocuous if you're thinking about marketing you know products maybe or gigs or whatever but we're also talking about facebook as a massive marketplace two million people use facebook it's probably one of the biggest geographies now in the world um, in terms of population numbers so we're talking about people marketing things like housing and insurance mm. access to medical resources mm-hmm. you know these are really important if you can create hyper-ethnically segregated forms of marketing, then you do essentially mean uh, you are essentially re-segregating those industries, you know, in the way there's a quote from um, Privacy Commissioner Anna Johnston, who um, also uh, from this Future Tense episode, where she says, you know, you can't write um, whites only on uh, on a physical ad anymore. Mm. Um, this is obviously putting aside that there is still massive issues in racial bias in, in housing in general. But you can essentially write white, whites only yeah. if you're marketing through a kind of, you know, um, because you don't have to, because you can code it in there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and if they're, you know, uh, one, I've recently read it. I think I've read, mentioned on the on the show before this book I've read called Radical Technologies mm. um, recently, where by Adam Greenfeld, and one of the points he makes is like, even if you're technically not legally allowed to discriminate yeah, through yeah, your yeah. algorithm, you can usually find an attribute that will stand in for that attribute. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally, yeah, that's legal. And I think something else that's happening. Um, in the way that this data gets captured and then used is that, and, and I, was, I was reading in particular how, how some of this data is being used in, um, in geography in particular and looking at the way that people are moving through space. Um, and it, what, what it can do is, is g- gather all this information and then turn that information into a model. So all that's really happening is the data is then being used to reproduce what already is rather than what might ought to be. It's, mm. it's sidestepping that entire conversation altogether. So you just do wind up reproducing these particular behaviours and these particular patterns, these particular social relationships. Um, but because now it's, like, data-driven, mm. it has this this authority that before it perhaps didn't have and now it has this veneer of neutrality mm-hmm. um, that it absolutely does not deserve. But um, it's, it's harder to question because it is um, kind of masked through these algorithms and we don't really see mm. the internal workings of them. Yeah, totally. And it, uh, yeah, this is kind of a, um, a, there's a quote from, I was reading a chapter this week, um, I'll, I'll post it on the internet later, it's a chapter called The, the Internet of Things, I think. <laughs> um, but the, the writer talks about this idea of, um, or, or writes, we miss details. The first is that there is no cloud. When we're talking about the Internet of Things, what are we actually talking about? We're talking about data acquisition, aggregation analytics, and actions taken on that data and on the analytics that relate the data together. It goes from personal to systemic. In the set of relationships that unfold along this stack, there are imbalances of power. 
The data from fitness trackers is aggregated and analysed both by us and by the firm that provided it, says Powell, who's one of the guys who's, anyway, implicated in a bunch of ways in this stuff. The data is valuable to us um, as we can ask if we've walked up enough stairs today. Am I getting fitter? It's a story we're telling ourselves about ourselves. But now that story, yeah, but now we tell that story through data. At the same time, those analytics are available to the firm that sells fitness trackers and anyone else they're selling aggregated fitness tracker data to. The data has a life in the wider ecosystem. It's no longer the story we're telling ourselves. It's our data double. It's out there in the world having a life, creating relationships about a single person and groups of people who undertake similar actions. The results of the analysis of those data doubles are open to a lot of different entities. Um, so this, you know, this idea of the the kind of the smart city, mm. all these things we interact with daily that are producing data that is often, and it, the, often the story we tell ourselves about it is that it makes us more efficient. You know, we know yeah. more things about ourselves. We can be better workers. We can be better people because we know all of these things now about how we work and how we think and how we, whatever, how many steps we've walked up. Um, but I guess the and this maybe speaks back to the, the labour conversation we were having a bit earlier, that data is also being used to produce profit for a very specific mm. cross-section of people. Uh, and it's doing very particular work for them, you know. So it's it's producing particular kinds of subjects who are... And this is crossing over to the particular kinds of subjects who are valuable and others who aren't and who we, who we care enough about to market to and who we don't. Um, and I think in the the one of the really the final points that I want to make about the smart city thing is the relationship between smart cities and gentrification because mm. I think it's hugely important. Oh yeah. Not only because um, you know tech industries in particularly in the US have often um, kind of started the wave of gentrification. So in cities like San Francisco and Seattle, um, tech the kind of import of of tech industries into into the the place rapidly drives up price people are being paid heaps of money so rental prices go up and up and up um increasingly in in cities like austin we see that and i was recording some interviews in austin last year and one of the interviews was about how austin is a city where since the the kind of tech boom um the population it's the second fastest growing city in the u.s um, and it has a, a an, like the popula the black population is dropping. So mm. despite the population growth being astronomical, it's like doubling in size every year. Um, the black population is, is is dropping, which is just crazy. It means it's like absolute removal of black folks from historically black neighbourhoods, which is a classic element in the gentrification story. And it's also relevant to this this idea of like you know the smart city and the the kind of data from these sensors produces a sense of like what kind of people are in a particular area and what what else is around mm-hmm. there and all of the people who market it market it as like oh you'll have so much information about the you know your prospective new home you'll know <laughs> what the schools are like are there cafes how did people rate the cafes like what are, you know? <laughs> um, God. yeah so it's this this kind of whole new space in which gentrification dynamics are unfolding well uh, <laughs> yeah. Boom! Yeah, anyway. yeah. I think you've pretty much that was a great uh, overview. <laughs> so, <laughs> also, we have like five minutes left. Now. I don't yes, want to come into Brisbane. Mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, any final thoughts, maybe before we run to a track to play out the end of the show? Final um, thoughts on privacy. I think uh, one of the things that I read in this radical technologies book, which has stuck with me, is the idea because often we trade in. Um, privacy for convenience Mm. or for some perceived benefit or maybe Mm. it's security you know something we want um 
And Adam Greenfeld said at one point in the book, like, yeah, you get your, you know, you get your, say, your laundry detergent shipped to you on demand according to sophisticated algorithms that predict it and, you know, you never have to lift a finger. You get that, but Amazon gets so much more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. So maybe, yeah, that, that's something that I think about a lot. Yes, yeah, not totally. an equal exchange there. No. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Anna, any final thoughts on privacy? Oh, just, I think just those same points. So we'll probably come back to conversations about privacy sometime over the next couple of months. But I think maybe it's, for me, it's about thinking about the as collective experiences, that mm. this um, needing to disrupt the sense of, of privacy as being something that we need to protect ourselves and starting to think about it as something that's a kind of dynamic, a living dynamic in the world and something that needs to be grappled with on the scale of a, of a collective experience rather mm. than an individual one. Yeah. Cool. What about you, Nat? Let's do that then. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That sounds pretty good. Nah, sorted. Yeah, no, I've got that scheduled in for the Savo. Okay, yeah, (laughs) awesome. I'm not doing anything. That sounds good. Yeah. 